global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are delighted to welcome two lawyers from the Bermuda office of Walkers, a leading international law firm which has been recognized by Chambers and Partners for its depth of expertise in offshore transactional work. Adam Bathgate joined Walker's Bermuda office in 2020, and he is a partner in the Corporate Finance Funds and Insurance Group. He specializes in banking and finance transactions involving Bermuda companies and partnerships. He is admitted in Bermuda and formerly practiced in the Cayman Islands, as well as England and Wales, the latter two forming a single jurisdiction for those of you who might not be too familiar with the UK system. Adam holds bachelor's and master's degrees from Oxford. Corin Knights joined Walker's Bermuda office in 2019 and works in the same group as Adam. He is admitted in Bermuda, holds a master's from the University of Law, Moorgate in London, and an LLB from the University of Wales in Cardiff. Adam, Corin, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you, Fred. Uh, delighted to be here. Yes, thank you. Definitely. It's a pleasure. Gentlemen, I'm sure this is a particularly exciting episode for Fred, who hails from the Caribbean, specifically Puerto Rico. We know Bermuda is not geographically in the Caribbean Sea, but it is considered part of the Caribbean region, and it is in fact an associate member of CARICOM, the Caribbean community. You are our first guest from the region. So could you set the stage for our listeners by explaining Bermuda's status, in particular its relationship with the UK? Sure. Um, Bermuda is what is nowadays known as a British overseas territory. Um, these are a collection of territories, all of which have a constitutional and historical link with the United Kingdom. They are essentially remnants of the former British Empire, and there are 14 of them left. Um, Bermuda is the oldest overseas territory. It was settled in 1609. Uh, while it is uh, a, an overseas territory, it's essentially self-governing. Um, executive authority is officially vested in the crown and exercised on the queen's behalf by uh, a governor who is the de facto head of state. He's or she is usually a career diplomat in the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, the governor appoints the premier following an election and has certain residual powers. So he appoints the commissioner of police and that sort of thing. Bermuda has its own constitution, which provides for 
self-government with a bicameral parliament. It's the oldest continuously sitting legislature in the in the New World and first sat in 1620. So because of that, it has its own legal system as based on English common law, but varied or supplemented by Bermuda statutes enacted by its parliament and by local case law. Now, English decisions uh, are persuasive, but not technically binding. Um, the ultimate right of appeal from the Bermuda courts is to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. While Bermuda is, is largely, uh, as we've discussed, self, self-governing, the, the UK remains responsible for, for defence and, and foreign affairs. So that Bermuda won't have any overseas embassies or, or things like that, although it does have a couple of representative offices in, in London and in Brussels. And how much does the weather factor into your decision to relocate from the UK to the Caribbean? Uh, just a off-the-cuff question. <laughs> you know, I, uh, so I, I grew up in, in, in England, as you can probably tell from the way I speak. And uh, then when I, when I left, it was to Germany where the climate isn't much better. So I'd be lying if I didn't say that the, the climate was a, was a big factor. And to be honest, I, I think uh, a move back is something that, that I'd find quite difficult having spent uh, I've been in in, in Cayman and in, in now in Bermuda for, for a decade. So um, I'm, I've, I've definitely gone soft. Um, I'll put a coat on uh, at a lot earlier stage than, than my family when, whenever we're back there. And um, yeah, I'm a bit more sensitive to, to temperature changes than I used to be. And I was thinking that Bermuda's diplomacy is not that big of an issue because everyone comes to Bermuda, right? Bermuda doesn't have to go looking for relationships with others, right? They, they just come for the sun and then you can do business while you're there. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're, we're, we're very friendly, welcoming people, and uh, people want to come here. So that's that's uh, it's quite it works out well for everyone. I spent quite a bit of time in in Hong Kong uh, over the years, and the, the city does have a, a rather large expatriate community. A lot of a lot of um, Brits, of course, and uh, certainly for for a lot of them, the the, the weather is uh, is an important factor. I mean, I've heard those sentiments echoed. Um, by, by long-term expatriates who really, really wonder if, if they could adjust to, to, the, to, to the weather weather back home. As, as Jonathan just, just uh, alluded to, uh, obviously Bermuda is a, a well-known tourist destination. It, the proximity to, to the United States, especially to the eastern seaboard, is a, is a big factor. Uh, however, it, it is also uh, well-known as, as an offshore financial center for, in, in fact, for uh, I venture to say that in a place like Hong Kong, that's how it's best known, rather rather than because of, of the tourism. So, for listeners who are unfamiliar with with the offshore industry, could you help explain just what that means? And in, in general terms, how does a particular jurisdiction become an OFC or an offshore financial center? It's a great question. I'm I'm glad you've you've asked it. I think probably the best way. Uh, in, in which I, I can answer that is uh, to speak about what offshore financial centers or, or, or international financial centers are, and then to speak about what they're not. So an offshore financial center, as, as you named it, or an international financial center, as, as, as they prefer to call themselves, they're, they're essentially jurisdictions that facilitate the 
international flow of capital. It's not a, a club in any sense. Um, they, they do share uh, certain characteristics and you know, because they have certain common interests, they, they do work closely with each other uh, in, in some respects. Um, so th those characteristics include uh, specialized legal institutions that they're, they're sort of based around you know, high quality specialized legal systems and, and institutions that would uh, engender investor confidence in the rule of law and in the fairness of, of court processes and, and arbitrations. Most of the well-known uh, IFCs or, or OFCs have legal systems like Bermuda based on uh, English common law, and uh, they will also have specific local legislation that is tailored to commercial rather than retail transactions. The second characteristic is the is tax neutrality. These jurisdictions f facilitate cross-border investment. Now, the income or capital that's being deployed is going to be taxed in the investor's country of residence or domicile and in the source country of, of the investment. But if it's facilitated through uh, an IFC, then it's not going to be taxed in the jurisdiction in which that capital is pooled. So it allows cross-border investments to be made from, from investors in, in multiple jurisdictions without a third layer of, of tax being, being incurred. Uh, so that's, that makes IFCs ideal for, for pooling investment across jurisdictions in that way. The, the third feature is a high level of regulatory compliance. The reputation of uh, jurisdictions like Bermuda depends on respect for the rule of law and the robustness and integrity of, of, of its legal system. So stringent compliance with, with international regulatory standards are, are commonplace. I mean, examples of this are uh, Bermuda being one of the early adopters of, of FATCA um, and the OECD's common reporting standards, cross-border regimes set up to facilitate the exchange of, of tax information. Bermuda and, and other IFCs that also have uh, stringent compliance with the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing standards uh, promulgated by the Financial Action Task Force, again, it's a cross-border organization. And the third uh, example would be uh, the adoption of, of beneficial ownership registers uh, aimed at um, transparency and facilitating compliance with uh, and cooperation with with uh, law enforcement and, and regulatory authorities onshore. I mean, those beneficial ownership registers are to be made public in Bermuda from 2022. Bermuda and, and other IFCs have also uh, adopted economic substance regimes in, in response to the initiative uh, mounted by the, the EU's Code of Conduct uh, group. And One World Bank study that was conducted a few years ago found that uh, none of the British crown dependencies or overseas territories allowed a company to be established without the, the person doing so providing proper due diligence identification materials. And actually three quarters of onshore OECD countries allowed it. So, um, you know, so high levels of, of regulatory com compliance is kind of essential for jurisdictions like that. The fourth factor is a, a high quality service sector. So major offshore law firms like Walker's recruit lawyers with experience in 
major onshore financial centers and jurisdictions. And there are also large accounting and audit firms present here, including all of the big four, the major banks, the numerous fund administrators. In terms of what IFCs uh, are not, I mean, I think I can use this opportunity to dispel a few myths, hopefully. Uh, the first being this idea of, of tax havens, the, the idea that, that IFCs exist so as to allow people to dodge taxes. I mean, the, the reality is that taxes are and, and they always will be uh, due in the jurisdiction where the, where the money is made and where it's being distributed. And what, what IFCs do is they just provide a, a tax neutral platform so that additional layers of activity like, like the pooling of, of, of investor capital from multiple jurisdictions don't incur additional taxes above and beyond what is ordinarily paid in the investors' home jurisdictions and in the jurisdictions where the capital is invested. Linked to that is, is the myth that uh, IFCs deprive countries of, of tax revenue. I mean, again, that's not, not quite true. I mean, the, the reality is that, that large countries don't compete as such with, with offshore centers because uh, offshore centers just yield the tax base back to onshore jurisdictions. And what I mean by that is if you live in country X and pay tax in country Y, then country X will give you a tax credit for the money that you've paid to Y so that you're, you're not taxed twice. But because there's no direct taxes imposed in, in, in offshore financial centers and X in, in that scenario will confer no tax credits, meaning that the tax bill in, in, in country X wouldn't be reduced in, in that way. Then there's the, the idea that there's, there's millions of dollars sort of stashed in, in offshore bank accounts. Uh, and I, again, the reality is that the money just doesn't sit un, unused in, in offshore accounts. I mean, I, that, that just wouldn't be a good investment. I mean, what is the return on, on cash these days? It's, it's pretty limited, right? So it, instead, uh, the, the, the capital is, is invested through IFCs into into other jurisdictions and, and just and put to work uh, in in those places so as to increase investor returns or, or to reduce risks. So I mean, they don't, cash just doesn't sit uh, here doing doing nothing. And the, the fourth myth that I think I, I, I'd like to try and dispel is is the idea that uh, these places are, are secrecy jurisdictions, which help to shelter clients from from law enforcement and, and from tax authorities. I mean, as as I sort of alluded to earlier, offshore centres were, were among the first jurisdictions to sign tax information exchange agreements with the USA. With the UK, uh, they were among the first to sign the FATCA. They were early adopters of the common reporting standard. So they're really world leaders in, in sharing tax information. Beneficial ownership registers, they exist now. They're going to be made public in a couple of years, but they are right now available to law enforcement authorities and, and competent authorities following a valid request. So they're not there to, to, to help people hide. And would you say that investment in an IFC, you know, having capital there ready to deploy or involved in different projects, does that facilitate uh, future investment in the IFC? I mean, there's got to be an, uh, external benefits to the IFC for offering that 
opportunity and also to investors who say, well, I've got capital tied up, uh, you know, in Bermuda, I might as well buy some property there, or maybe I'll get a special investor visa or something like that. Are those options available as well? Well, we'll talk about the the opportunities available to to, to international uh, investors in terms of, of coming here and, and setting up a physical presence uh, later on. But um, the 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 fact that, that capital is deployed here it sort of provides the biggest um, the biggest part of the Bermuda economy. I mean, it sort of gives people like uh, like Corin and me jobs, and and uh, it's not just law firms around here that that the, the uh, we'll we'll get onto this uh, in a second, but uh, you know, Bermuda is really the, the world's international risk capital. So there are uh, insurers and, and reinsurers here with with substantial um, physical presences, uh, and that, that really pr- provide jobs to to a lot of Bermudians and to to foreign workers here. Uh, the, the, the 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 access to capital really is is one reason why. Um, why they choose to to establish here, and uh, and why service providers will also set up here, just to to be around that that community uh, of 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 businesses that that are seeking to deploy uh, capital that's being raised from external sources. And so you made a good segue into this question I wanted to ask, which is how Bermuda is differentiating itself from other IFCs. You said it's the center of of the IFC universe, so to speak. So can you elaborate on that more? Well, I mean, at, at a basic level, I mean, each of these IFCs might be said to have uh, particular specialities. With the British Virgin Islands, it's, it's holding companies. With the Cayman Islands, you could say it's it's investment funds. There's a there's a there is a degree of overlap between uh, jurisdictions. So there are holding companies and funds here. There are insurance companies in in, in Cayman and, and so forth. Bermuda's speciality, if if you want to. Put it in those terms. Uh, until now, has has been insurance and, and reinsurance. Uh, and as of uh, last year, there were over 1,200 insurers and, and reinsurers uh, set up in Bermuda, um, uh, holding total assets in excess of 800 billion dollars, uh, and writing gross premium in excess of approximately 150 billion dollars. So that, as I say, those stats are as of 2019. It's the, the most recently ones available. I mean, in terms of the regulatory environment, uh, Bermuda has full equivalence with EU Solvency II regime. So it allows uh, insurers and, and reinsurers based here level playing field access to the EU market. It's also been granted uh, US reciprocal and qualified status by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Uh, the Bermuda Monetary Authority, uh, which celebrated its 50th anniversary last year, we like to regard that as a as a world respected regulator with with a, a risk based framework. Um, and to support the the insurance sector, the, the BMA has developed the Bermuda Solvency Capital Requirement as as a risk based capital model that that enhances the the capital adequacy framework for that sector. A couple of other ways in in which Bermuda likes to distinguish itself here it's it's in innovation and being an early adopter. It was actually the Bermuda market that that created the world's first uh, captive insurer in in 1962, and uh, we're going to get onto this a, a, a little later. But the Bermuda government uh, 
has a, a strategy uh, of, of encouraging the development of a, of a fintech sector. Um, again, Bermuda was an early adopter in that respect. It adopted uh, our Digital Asset Business Act, which is a, a landmark uh, piece of legislation which provides for the licensing and, and supervision of, of digital assets business uh, activities in Bermuda. And we adopted that at a time when not many jurisdictions, whether onshore or offshore, had, had done so. ASD, uh, the, the final factor, it's maybe less relevant uh, in the current uh, global pandemic, but it's accessibility. We're sort of in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean here. New York's a 90-minute flight away, and, and, and London is is six hours, so it's, it's a lot closer than, than the Caribbean. Uh, as I say, that's that's not so relevant right now when, when everyone's uh, doing things remotely and uh, we're all sick of Zoom by now, but um, certainly post-COVID, that, that's going to be uh, an important factor. Like. That's been a fantastic introduction to, to Bermuda and, and more specifically to its to its financial sector. Um, if we could now turn in a, in a more personal direction, uh, we always like to, to, to learn about our, our guests uh, as, as persons, not, not just the, not, not just learn about their, their jurisdictions and, and their areas of practice. So starting with you, Adam, and, and we already talked a little bit about this in the, in the context of, of weather, but how does working in Bermuda compare to your experience in, in both London and Munich? Uh, what are some of the things that, that you miss? And conversely, what are some of the things that you would not want to give up by, by leaving Bermuda? Good question. Um, so as you kindly uh, illustrated earlier, so my background on shore was, was a, a finance uh, lawyer. I did, uh, I did a lot of debt transactions. So that, that's still uh, most, of, most of what I do. The, the key difference, uh, I guess, is that you know, onshore in, 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 in London and, and in Munich, I was in the middle of the deal. I, I'd be the one uh, drafting the main, the main deal documents and uh, you know, I'd be negotiating the, the commercial terms uh, on behalf of, of, of our client. And I'd, I'd actually be in the room when, when major issues were being argued over and, and thrashed out. And uh, as a result of that, and, and being in the same uh, same city, I'd have a lot more direct client contact. Um, I mean, the difference uh, doing those deals from the Bermuda side is that well, we were still doing the same the same kinds of transactions, but uh, we we only focus on on the Bermuda element. So maybe we've got a, a Bermuda guarantor somewhere in the structure. So all, all we do is is look at, I, mean, I say all we do, but it's actually key for the, for the lender's credit risk is, is uh, you know, we look at you know, can that company give that guarantee and is there anything in, in the documents that's going to be problematic when it comes to, to enforcing that, that guarantee, for example. So it's, it's necessarily a, a smaller role and um, we, we have more interaction with uh, the, the, the firms that are, that are running the deals the kind of firm that I used to work for, uh, rather than than with the client itself. So, um, what that means, because the role was much bigger in, in my former life, uh, I'd, I'd only have uh, a couple, one or two deals on uh, at any one time, but I'd, I'd be fully immersed in them. Uh, I mean, full, properly in, in, in an intense way uh, until they closed, and then it'd be on on to the next one. 
Um, here, you know, we have a greater number of deals on the go at any one time, but because of the, the lesser workload on each, it means we're better able to juggle them around, I suppose, and, uh, and better able to, to manage my, my own time. So coming back to, to answer your questions about what I miss and what, what I, what I wouldn't want to, want to give up. I think, you know, what I miss is actually the accessibility of, of clients. So just having them sort of easily available in, in the same city and being able to, to reach out for them and, and, uh, Go and meet to, to market our capabilities, or just to, to go for a coffee, or, or or a lunch, or a beer, or see what's on their mind and you know, where they think the market's at. That's it's more of a process when we're uh, when we're so far away. Um, I mean, up until this year, it would involve you know, having to get on a plane and then plan out a trip and, and 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 making sure we had enough meetings lined up to make it worthwhile. I mean, that is now you know, practically impossible. So it does, does a lot of Zoom chats and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's really common with, with most of us. Uh, it's something that, um, you know, I, I think we'll all be glad to see the, the back of before long. Um, I mean, what, what I wouldn't want to give up is just having that, that greater control over, over my time. I mean, the type of clients that I'm working for and, and the quality of the work I do is, is the same. But, Again, just just having that just that smaller involvement on on each deal means that I can sort of shuffle things around more easily while still getting done what I need to do, and there's there's less chance of you know, the, the five p.m. phone call blowing up my my entire evening. Corin, we're interested in hearing about your experience as a Bermudan working at a global law firm. Do you find that having local perspective changes the way you approach work on Bermudan law matters? As a corporate lawyer is slightly different to my colleague uh, Adams, just because as he sort of explained, his his background uh, comes from the onshore world and then on to the offshore world. Whereas for me, my career has started just only in Bermuda in terms of of the work that I do, um, and having trained at one global uh, law firm to then coming over to Walkers. So for my my own perspective, I've found that because we're still dealing with uh, sort of big international clients from the Bermudian perspective, you know, they still uh, will demand a high quality of service, um, high quality of legal advice. Um, and, 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 and in that respect, the, the requirements uh, are still the same. So I think just where we add another layer of quality is in terms of our relationship with the regulators here uh, due to Bermuda being uh, relatively small and, and um, in terms of just the population, but also the circles in which these deals are getting done, um, we are, we're often in contact with, you know, the Bermuda Monetary Authority and the Registrar of Companies, such that it's really easy for us to pick up the phone and get, uh, get them on the phone if, you know, we're having issues getting a deal done or so that we can kind of circumvent any small niggly things that might come up, which would otherwise delay the bigger deal getting done. Um, and I think clients, that's something that clients really appreciate because they really rely on us to make sure that those things, we can just sort of handle them in a way that's convenient for them. And I think from the third perspective, my 
being a Bermudian working at a global firm just on a more local basis is um, something that I think adds value to younger Bermudians who are considering a career um, as a as a corporate lawyer. You know, they will look at a firm like Walker's and the size that Walker's is globally and think that, you know, this is good. This is a firm that is giving Bermudians opportunities, um, is giving Bermudians a platform to really sort of develop their legal skills and, you know, end up on fantastic podcasts and uh, really sort of get their name out there in terms of being a quality offshore lawyer. And that, you know, it's not necessarily the case that you have to have had a long career or a long sort of training process in in an onshore firm that you can actually have a, a successful career as a lawyer coming in sort of from the offshore side. So those are the kind of three main elements that I think as being a Bermudian are, are, are advantageous. Thank you for that. So being late November here in the United States, I'm sure most of our listeners in the U.S. don't need to be sold on the merits of Bermuda as a vacation spot. However, uh, what else should we know about uh, Bermuda's economy uh, beside the fact that it's an IFC and a tourism destination? Are there opportunities for foreign entrepreneurs um, that may perhaps not think of Bermuda as a possible place to explore opportunities overseas? What the Bermuda government did on the heels of the pandemic and realizing that they wanted to keep um, our borders open as much as possible, to the extent possible and safely, they passed legislation allowing foreign entrepreneurs to come to Bermuda. Uh, and this legislation simply allows them to apply for a one-time work permit, which will last a year. I think they have to be over the age of 18. And what that allows them to do is to sort of just be in Bermuda, uh, live in Bermuda, but still do their conduct their work as if they were living in any other jurisdiction they had come from, whether that be the United States or Europe. And so that they use as a creative way to sort of get more people into the island, have them kind of boosting the own local economy. Um, and it's something that I think we've seen actually a, a fair bit of, of demand for. There's been, I think to date, around 500 applications have been approved by the government for this. Um, and in a time where, you know, we're already having restricted travel, um, I think that's something that they've seen as, as a positive. On the other side of it, and Adam alluded to it a little bit earlier with regards to fintech, this is something that I think has been a real sort of pillar and positive light for Bermuda in the last three years. Um, as Adam sort of uh, said earlier, the digital asset legislation that Bermuda passed was really a, the first comprehensive regime regarding fintech and allowing entrepreneurs to come to Bermuda and set up their own fintech or insurtech businesses. Under this sort of legislation, it allows for the entrepreneurs to come to Bermuda and apply for one of two licenses. One is a license where their uh, company is put into what's called a sandbox. And in that sandbox, they will work with the Bermuda regulators and the monetary authority to sort of strengthen their business model. They'll get guidance on how that they can, how they can pass necessary approvals and all the while still doing business. And that will allow them to you know, do business from a local perspective or an international perspective. The second type of license that they can apply for, you know, provided that their business is already established, they can apply straight to have a digital asset business in Bermuda. And these sorts of things can you know, allow them to do you know, initial coin offerings, uh, open digital wallets, really it kind of opens the door completely to 
the entire fintech world, which is something that Bermuda is quite proud of. And it's all hands on deck in trying to make that sort of the next pillar of our uh, economy next to being a reinsurance center. You know, and, and, and within Walkers, we have our own global fintech team that is always willing and able to collaborate with, with clients and make sure that they get their, the accurate advice that they need. Those currently are the most recent developments in terms of foreign entrepreneurs and having them come to Bermuda, along with everything else that uh, my colleagues already advised on. You've mentioned that Bermuda is quite entrepreneurial, uh, you know, being a first adopter in many ways. Uh, we understand that it's currently considering a bill to legalize cannabis, opening the door for cultivation, research, retail, and other activities. Our firm has a very active cannabis practice, both in the U.S. and internationally. And we would love to hear your insights on this legislation in Bermuda. Okay, so uh, cannabis is one of those things that uh, can always be a little bit sensitive depending on um, how we're discussing it. But I think from Bermuda's perspective, it's something that the Bermuda government has seen as a potential opportunity to further increase um, uh, foreign entrepreneurship to the extent possible. Currently, um, Cannabis is still a controlled drug. Uh, it has been decriminalized up to, the possession of it has been decriminalized up to seven grams. However, the use of it, the importation or selling of it is still illegal. Um, to that extent, uh, we do have scope for medical marijuana. Um, however, the, there is a bit of a process. You have to go, an individual or a company would have to go through in order to um, be approved for that it would have to be approved by our minister of national security and to date i don't think too many uh, have actually successfully applied for that license um, now having said that cannabis now has recently been considered by our bermuda monetary authority as 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 something that they can get around in terms of supporting and approving funds or reinsurers where there has been some sort of uh, cannabis structure, uh, cannabis facing business within a structure, um, they have come out and issued guidance on this subject. And they've said simply, they will approve the uh, uh, Bermuda Fund or Bermuda Reinsurer who has uh, is involved with a company that is. Um, uh, in, involved with the selling of cannabis or dealing of cannabis in any way, provided that there is no criminal conduct at the federal level anywhere throughout that business structure. So um, as far as we would understand, this wouldn't, you know, if, if there were businesses in Canada and they um, uh, wanted to have some kind of structure in Bermuda, that wouldn't be an issue for the Bermuda Monetary Authority. However, there would probably be issues uh, if that business, for example, did did business in America where it's still, as we understand, uh, illegal at a federal level. Well, gentlemen, this has been a really informative uh, session. So I'd like to, to, first of all, thank you for, for having joined us. But before we let you go, we'd like to ask you for recommendations, as, as we do of, of all of our guests. Um, that way, in addition to what you have shared with our listeners today, um, you can provide all of us with, with additional opportunities to, to gain from, from your insight. So um, is there anything that either or both of you would like to recommend today? 
Yeah, mine is a book called The Spy and the Traitor by a chap called Ben McIntyre. Uh, he's written a number of books about uh, mid-century spies. This is the story of Oleg Gordievsky, who is the, um, the most significant uh, British agent in, in the Cold War. He was fairly high up in the KGB, I believe. At one stage, he was the uh, resident or the, uh, the head of the KGB delegation at the Soviet embassy in London. And um, with the, some of the information that he was passing to, to MI6 uh, on the Soviet attitude to uh, uh, military exercises that that, um, that, that, that our, NATO was undertaking, uh, and and the paranoia that infested the the the, uh, the Politburo and uh, uh, other upper ranks of, of Soviet uh, society at the time, he was he was able to uh, almost avert a potential nuclear war when uh, the Soviets uh, misread. The, the exercise able archer as a potential first strike. Uh, eventually, he uh, he was recalled to, to Moscow and under suspicion in, in 1985 and uh, sent an emergency signal to his MI6 handlers by appearing at a pre-designated point holding a, a Safeway shopping bag. And the MI6 agent uh, acknowledged the, the message had been received by walking past uh, eating a Mars bar and uh, and miraculously, they were able to uh, spirit him out of uh, the Soviet Union that sort of over the land border into Finland and, and there from, from their backpack to safety in, in, in the UK. It's a, it's a really uh, amazing story. Again, if you didn't know it was, uh, it was true, you, you might say it was almost too wild to, to be believed. But the way it's written is also very appealing, I, I find, as well. It's, it's sort of history written like a novel. Uh, and, and is gripping in exactly that, that respect. So it's something I greatly enjoy. What about you, Corin? Uh Yeah, so I have um, two short recommendations. One is a book that I have uh, just got, um, just had the pleasure of finishing, and that's 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunately not a really exciting spy thriller, but um, it is a book that is centered sort of around uh, improving one's life through things that they can control. Um, and, you know, I, I do enjoy listening to uh, lectures by Jordan Peterson. Um, and so reading his book was, was a real inspiration for myself. Um, and then the second is uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, The Joe Rogan Experience. I think um, whenever I have the time, I'm switching on his podcast because I think whatever guest he has on at the time is incredibly interesting. Um, and, you know, the idea of being on a podcast was pretty exhilarating for me after having listened to one for a few years now. So um, I think, you know, those two things for me are, are, are mainstays as they were. I have to um, endorse uh, both of those recommendations. I'm also a, a fan of Rogan and, and also of, of, of Jordan Peterson. I thought the the Joe Rogan interview with um, Snowden recently, I thought that was, that was uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, definitely worthwhile almost should be required uh, listening to for anyone interested in, in international um, affairs. I don't, I might have even recommended it here on the, on the podcast. Um, not sure. Um, and Adam, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of uh, anything having to do with, with espionage. So I'm going to be on the lookout for, um, for that book. Uh, Jonathan, what about you? 
Mine is much more light, uh, lighter than even uh, these suggestions so far. Uh, this is an article in the Nikkei Asia uh, paper called Nintendo Chief Plots Post-Animal Crossing Future. So I grew up a as a gamer, right? I mean, I was probably four or five years old when the first Nintendo came out. And so I've always been a fan of Nintendo. And uh, my kids and I play on our on our Switch now. And so it's it's fun for me to read, you know, as an international business lawyer, to read about Nintendo planning its future, you know, how it's basically how it's grown along with a lot of other gaming companies this year during the pandemic, as even closet gamers, uh, you know, have uh, delved deeper into their closets to find old games, you know, as we've been, a lot of us have been stuck at home. Uh, so it's, it's fun to read, uh, you know, not, not a super long article, but it's fun to see kind of how Nintendo has grown and also how it plans to pivot and uh, keep trying to grow its market share. And I don't play Animal Crossing, so it was kind of fascinating to read. I'm, I'm not in that kind of uh, group of people who does, uh, but it's fun to uh, to get the inner workings of a company like Nintendo. And this was an exclusive article, so uh, it's, it's fun to uh, to read from the insider's perspective. Well, Fred, what about you? Something a little more serious than video games, I assume. A little bit, a little bit more. Um, so as uh, listeners will, or some of our listeners will know, and um, Adam, Corin, you, you you might or might not know, our our firm has a very, very strong China practice. It's it's definitely something that, that is always um, in, in our minds, anything, everything that, that's happening with China. Although, of course, we, we, we do try to, to branch out, and, and I think this, this podcast is, is evidence of that. Um, but we... Uh, on a very regular basis, keep keep coming back to to China related topics, um, and and today is is, is no exception. Um, so, recommending an article titled "How China Seeks to Redefine Global Norms and Keep the West at Bay" uh, by Simon Shen, uh, S H E N. This is uh, from the Hong Kong Free Press, published on let's see the twenty second of, of November of this year. And you know, there's a lot being written about China at all times. Um, it's hard sometimes to to find articles that that have a different take, um, or at least look at things from a from a slightly different angle. Who and I think this this article manages to to do it. There, there's a lot of the stuff I read about China does seem a little repetitive, uh, but this was one of those articles that um, that that jumped out at me as as something a little bit different. So if you know if you're not a China junkie uh, like I am, um, then this might be one of those uh, periodic articles that that you can you can pick up. Uh, as always, we will be including links to to all of the all of the recommendations. So uh, again, Adam Corin, thank you so much for well, first of all, for the recommendations, and just more generally for 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 being a, our guests. I really really enjoyed uh, this show. Uh, thanks for having us on. It's been uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yes, yeah, certainly it's been a huge pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.